Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy Rails tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett, and this is Globalist Cuck. Tommy Vitor. <laughs> 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 On the pod today, we have the White House reporter for the Washington Post, Ashley Parker, the executive producer of Veep, Dave Mendel. Great show today. And as always, Pod Save America is brought to you by any airline but United. <laughs> United, <laughs> you, you can't drag doctors off or in their seats. Right? And by the way, oh my God. It's, it's also just not appropriate to charge a $75 dragging fee. <laughs> just think that's wrong. <laughs> Insult to injury. That's a joke right from Twitter. I just, you know, I do. I, I test my, I workshop my material on Twitter. The tweets are free. This I make money on. But uh, by the way, you know, not to ruin the illusion, but we already talked to Ashley, and it's an awesome interview. I'm really excited about it. Oh, I, I didn't want. I didn't want to ruin the illusion. Love it. It's well, done. Whatever it happened. Okay. Before we get into it. Uh, we subscribe to all of our pods, Pod Save the World. Tommy, I believe you're doing a special episode today. Yeah, I'm going to do a special episode on Syria, and then I'm talking to Senator Mark Warner about the Intelligence Committee and the Russia investigation. That'll go out Wednesday at regular time. Excellent. And of course, subscribe to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. Love it or leave it. As a juggernaut, it really found its stride this Friday. That's, <laughs> what, that's a, the message. That's the message. We had an awesome show with Neil Brennan, Ike Barinholtz, and Jessica Yellen, and you should check it out because it was really fun. Also, this is the last day to buy merch. Uh, yes, today, or if you're listening to this on Tuesday. Get crookedmedia.com. Yeah. Check it out. Buy some merch, buy some t-shirts. And also go check out your member of Congress. Find out if they're having a town hall over the next two weeks. And go to indivisible.org because they have um, messaging points and talking points and information on how to get to your congressman's town hall during this recess. Important time. You can talk to them about health care, talk to them about the budget. We're going to have a government funding bill and the uh, by the April 28th when they come back. So there's a lot to talk to your members of Congress yeah, about. Paul, Paul Ryan uh, specifically said he wanted health care passed by now because he was afraid of these town halls. That's right. So and uh, whoopsie daisy. Make your voice heard. Um, okay. Let's talk about Syria. And uh, let's be better than cable news and start with the substance of Syria before we get into the politics of Syria. Um, Tommy, can you give us a quick refresher on the Syrian civil war? How did it start? Who's fighting who? All that kind of stuff. I mean, the, the Arab Spring started in Tunisia in December of 2010. The Syria protests erupted not long after in March of 2011 when some teenagers in a southern city were spray-painting anti-regime slogans on the walls of a school, and they were arrested and tortured, and that led to protests, and, and the regime fired on those protesters, and things spiraled out of control from there. You know, that, that conflict over time became even more militarized, even more sectarian, even more ugly. And, you know, now we're at a place where literally hundreds of thousands of people um, have been killed. Some of the big inflection points along the way was August in 2012, President Obama drew a red line regarding chemical weapons and the use or proliferation of chemical weapons um, that sort of has led us to where we are last week with Trump striking uh, these regime targets, uh, a military base that was used for a chemical weapons attack earlier last week. And, you know, but 
you know, there's sort of a couple issues here. There's the issue of chemical weapons and Assad's use of them on his own people. You have the issue of ISIS uh, growing its foothold in the region and becoming more and more of a terrorist threat to really everybody. Uh, and then there's the just horrific humanitarian situation on the ground. So, I mean, people have been debating this. Let's start with, you know, back in, in 2013, right? So Obama draws the red line. Assad launches a sarin gas attack against civilians. Um, and so when Obama had previously said that the use of chemical weapons would constitute a red line, and of course, the use of chemical weapons is also against international law, right? But then the UN wouldn't vote to attack because Russia had a veto power in the UN. The UK voted against using force. And then, of course, Obama asked Congress to authorize the use of force, uh, even though he thought he had the authority anyway, right? And then right as Congress was going to vote on this, even though we didn't think we had the votes, um, basically the United States and Russia did a deal where they said Assad will give up his chemical weapons uh, if, if the United States doesn't attack. And so Assad gives up, what, 1,300 tons of chemical weapons. So right. in, in hindsight, right, A, we know he didn't give up all of his chemical weapon, weapons. Like, do you think we should have attacked at the time? Do you think it would have made a difference? I mean, a lot of people, there's like former Obama administration officials that are speaking to reporters over the weekend saying like, oh, we should have attacked back then and we're glad that Trump did. The, the problem here is the definitions of what success and failure are are so loose. Like, I, I don't right. think there's a scenario where a a military strike on 1,300 undeclared tons of chemical weapons spread over 45 different sites would have had a better outcome than shipping out those 1300 tons of chemical weapons i can't remember if it's tons or gallons whatever but you know there's this sort of more loose question of whether it would have sent a message that deterred Assad. i don't know that we that we know that yeah you know it's clear based on what trump did last week the Russians are already using that base to launch additional attacks on the same neighborhoods. They're just not using chemical weapons. So if his goal was to narrowly scope this and say, I'm going to take this limited action, these 59 tomahawks, to prevent future chemical weapons use, um, it remains to be seen if it was successful. Certainly it has not stopped the Russians and the Syrians from attacking civilians in Syria. That is a humanitarian disaster that is ongoing, that has been ongoing throughout the Obama administration, and is something that is very, very challenging to solve. So one thing that happened in, in, in 2013 was, it, I, I certainly remember having the sense that the President Obama changed his mind, that there was there were, that things were moving towards some kind of a strike, and then the decision was made to go to Congress, and then when Congress wouldn't approve it, to use that kind of as a way of justifying this isn't the time to use force. Is that is my is my understanding of that wrong? I mean, you just you don't know. I mean, he 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 decided to you know, go on this hour long 45 minute long walk with Dennis McDonough that Friday afternoon in August and sort of rethink his strategy here. And I think a lot of people have speculated uh, you know, and, and assumed that maybe he just didn't want to go to war and he was looking for an out. Um, others have thought that he sincerely thought that going to Congress was a way to actually get a stronger resolution put forward. You know, I, Dennis hasn't talked about it. I tried to push him on it when I talked to him last week for Pod Save the World. The president hasn't talked about the substance of that walk. I think there's a lot of assumptions made here. Um, it is certainly not fair to say that there was some grand, brilliant plan that led to this deal with the Russians. Um, you know, that's something we we got to over time. I think the the credible threat of force that was put on the ground by Obama 
regarding the red line probably helped us get to a resolution where we ship the chemical weapons out, the 1,300 metric tons, I looked it up, of chemical weapons pushed out. But, um, you know, look, it was, it, was not a, uh, it was not a perfect, seamless bit of diplomacy. There were some, there were some bumps along the way there. Well, because the reason I bring it up is because one of the things that was striking about that decision-making process is, and and it, and it sort of has had it's had implications for what Trump just did, is President Obama said we would like the authorization from Congress, but we believe that we don't need it, uh, yeah. and I just think that's been an that's played out now with Trump claiming the same level of authority, and. I don't know. It just it makes me that to me feels like a kind of bipartisan mistake. The assumption that the president has this kind of unlimited authority to wage war for limited periods of time or unlimited periods of time that that congressional authority is a is a luxury, but not a necessity. Well, yeah, look, that's a, I think that's a totally fair point. I mean, there there is no authority under national law to take these military strikes. Presidents in both parties have argued that the president has the authority to take strikes if it's in the national interest and it falls short of war. I agree with you, though, that like Democrats and Republicans have abdicated in Congress, have abdicated their responsibility to be a part of these discussions. And we should we should bring the AUMF, the authorization of military force forward and redebate that we should be debating in Congress the legality and the need and the national interest of striking Syria. But instead, it's they, they prefer the president to act and then get to put out press releases later when they know if it was a success or not. Right. They don't want to be on the record. So, I mean, one of the people warning Obama against military action in 2013 was Trump. (laughs) There's like now a million tweets that everyone's digging up from Trump that says, like, do not bomb Syria, Obama. Do not attack. Do not. Right. And then like up until a couple of weeks ago. Right. I mean, or a couple of weeks ago, it it seemed like the Trump administration broke from the Obama administration and saying that maybe Assad's removal was not a priority. Right. Or that. I mean, we always used to say Assad must go or Assad is going or there was a whole bunch of different iterations of that. So the question is, like, what changed Trump's mind aside from, I guess, the images of the uh, gas of the children dying from that gas attack on television? Right. Like, was it a policy change? Like, what's going on there? That's a good question. I mean, listen, you know, Obama said in starting in August of 2011, when a bunch of European leaders said the same thing, that Assad should go. Over time, they certainly de-emphasized that part of the policy. And I think by the end, we're at a point where they were saying any transition in Syria needs to have an election that includes refugees, which is sort of a de facto way you would get rid of Assad. But they certainly weren't weren't pressing on it. Trump has been saying all along we should deal with ISIS first. He's been saying Obama didn't have the authority to strike Syria without going to Congress. So he did a massive 180. And it's not clear to me if you watched... Rex Tillerson on the shows, or Nikki Haley, or uh, or H.R. McMaster, his national security advisor, what exactly their plan is going forward. In fact, it, it, it's pretty discordant. Well, that's we, what- we don't even know. We have no idea why they did this. It is, it's four days later, and they've offered these most ridiculous and vague justifications. Trump goes out to a bad mic and speaks for two minutes and says, the hearts of the people, what have you, written by, written by you know, B-plus Santa Monica fascist Stephen Miller. <laughs> and, 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 and we have, like, it, we've just never been in this situation before we have and also you know glenn greenwald made this point which is i think a really good one which is we have we have used military force in so many ways so often over the years that that sending 59 missiles into a country doesn't feel like war to us it's ridiculous well i mean it was interesting that mcmaster said um the strike was not meant to degrade Syria's ability to carry out chemical weapons attacks or other attacks, and he said it was meant as a signal. So, like, what signal could that have been, Tommy? Like, is that? <laughs> I don't want to talk uh, about don't. Russia anymore. 
I know, man. Like I, th- this, the my great frustration is when you read people say like we need to go to do X, like strike a target to send a, a signal to Y person, or this sends a signal to North Korea. There's all these like right. bang shot pieces of diplomacy that seem logical on a Sunday show, but really don't make any sense if you unpack them. Yeah, it's I mean, not a fucking tweet. What, I, I think the point he was making is like they didn't crater the runway and make it unusable for future planes to take off and land that might drop chemical weapons. They didn't hit you know, depots where they thought there might be additional sarin and render it unusable. They were saying to Assad, if you use CW again, you're getting more Tomahawk missiles. Maybe that will be effective in limiting future chemical weapons use. I don't know. But certainly he's still going to use barrel bombs and indiscriminately kill civilians in these very same neighborhoods. Well, it's not going to help the humanitarian situation. Right. That, that was that was the two piece of this is that, that this is why I think Siri's been so kind of confounding to even talk about, especially when you're talking about like how it's covered on television, which is, um, first of all, an incredible number of civilians have already died uh, because of conventional weapons. And then also we are on both sides of this conflict. Uh, we are we are, I, I, you know, supposedly actively fighting ISIS. And, uh, you know, so we're we're in, the, in this incredibly insane sort of multifaceted conflict. We are on multiple sides at once. You're right. I mean, listen, it's hard to see. It's hard to figure out how we sequence these things. Um, well, first on the chemical weapons, like chemical weapons are treated differently because they are so horrific. There is a, a treaty banning them and their use. So we try to set them apart the way we do other WME to prevent their use. That said, there is a massive illogic in treating an attack on of chemical weapons that killed less than 100 people when you have you know, indiscriminate bombings that's killed hundreds of thousands. I'm totally with you there. Well, and also, by the way, you see stories that one of the reasons Trump was motivated to do this is because he saw the images. But we actually don't see a lot of images of the death caused by conventional weaponry because they are they're incredibly gruesome. You know, they're just as gruesome. Yeah. Well, okay, it, so- it is searing. But, it, you know, it's also worth noting that in 2013, when there was a chemical weapons attack that led to the dis- debate over the red line, that uh, more than 400 kids were killed in that attack. So I- I'm not trying to dismiss his sincere view or emotional response to what happened. Just factually, this is something that's been happening way too often. Well, so let's go the other way, right? Let's say that uh, the Trump administration decides that it doesn't want to just send a signal that, you know, if Assad keeps going, they want to get more involved in this war, which some neoconservatives and either even some former Obama administration officials seem to be, you know, advocating, right? Like we need to do more to, you know, degrade Assad's ability to carry out a lot of these attacks. What are some of the risks of escalation in this war for the United States? There are massive risks. You know, there, we have a thousand U.S. troops or U.S. service members on the ground in northern Syria, and they could become a target. Um, you have Russian and U.S. jets flying around in that airspace constantly. Um, the Syrians have one of the better air defense systems out there. They have brand new Russian-made stuff, S-300 missile systems that could shoot down our planes if we tried to impose a no-fly zone. Um, we, uh, doing even getting into a no-fly zone would ha- require hitting targets on the ground, taking out their defense systems. You could risk an accidental armed conflict with Russia. So, you know, these are the sorts of slippery slope arguments that I think President Obama probably heard a lot of in the Situation Room when he was debating these things, and are frankly unanswered at this point in time. Wars are easier to start than they are to end. That is one thing that we've learned over time. How many times are we going to get involved in some civil war in another country because we we were presented with a group of bad options? We're like, let's do the worst one. I just don't. I don't get it. So let's uh, let's get to the politics of all this. So the, first of all, there's the White House spin, right? The White House spin is that um, this is all the really gross stuff about this, right? <laughs> the White House spin is that this is leadership week 
That's what in quotations. That's what they told Axios. Uh, they're gonna they're gonna package this up as Leadership Week because he had a successful Chinese summit and he had Gorsuch on the court and then he fired missiles. So that is leadership. And then the congressional the congressional reaction is also uh, is quite interesting too. Like all of these Republicans you have who did not want to give Obama congressional authorization for the strike in 2013 are now just like rushing to microphones to praise this thing. I mean, it seems a little hypocritical, no? How many times can we go off about hypocritical Republican Congress people? <laughs> yeah, no, it's infuriating. Like, I mean, but in the, it's not just that they're, they opposed it when Obama did it and they support it now, but everyone opposed Obama's actions for different reasons. Some warned that it was a slippery slope. Some said it was too limited and wouldn't do enough when it seems like Trump has now chosen the most limited option. I, I do think Lovett's fundamental point earlier is the most important one, which is Congress should be engaged on this stuff. Like, we have a president... That is a loose cannon at best. We should be trying to constrain him, not telling him, hey, go ahead and bomb stuff. We'll be cool with it later. And the people who are doing that the most, of course, are the media. Well, I, <laughs> or it's particularly cable news, right? I mean, mostly cable news. So I want to talk about the media reaction because that, that perhaps the whole, the, the worst, the worst element of this entire episode has been how yeah. cable news has reacted to this whole thing. I, I, want, I, I just want to make one point about the Democrats in Congress, too, before I do want to really dig into the media because it is the most unsavory part. But I also am pretty frustrated by Democrats putting out statement that their problem with what Trump did is about process that, you know, that's really important. But like it's a lot of Democrats avoiding talking about what they think should happen in Syria to say that the president should have gone to Congress. What do you think they should have said? I don't know. Do they support or oppose these strikes? Uh, We just don't know the answer. I I don't know the answer, but I'd like these people to take a stand beyond just wanting it to be approved or not, because I feel like nobody's arguing. There's very few people arguing that the president should not be taking military action in Syria. I mean, I do think that's one of these cases where uh, in today's world, like you have to put out a statement immediately, even though you sort of want to wait and see. Like if Trump came out with some larger strategy about the war or or about like what he was going to do in Syria, then you'd wait to hear what the strategy was and then decide if you're opposed to it or not. It is sort of hard to be for or against a single missile strike when you have no fucking idea what else is on the horizon, why he did it, or what his strategy is. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Media. So, okay, by now everyone has talked over and over again about fucking Brian Williams' quote, boy. Brian Williams and Fareed Zakaria in a death match over who gave the stupidest quote about this. <laughs> I mean, Brian Williams saying he was guided by the beauty of our... He was quoting Leonard Cohen saying he's guided by the beauty of our weapons. And then Fareed Zakaria saying this was the moment Trump became president. So they're rehashing the uh, the Van Jones line from We went the, at that <laughs> from... pretty hard on a little show called Love It or Leave It, which you should check out. Because we went <laughs> Uh, I believe that that was uh, only one moment. John actually took a microphone at some point to yell "fuck you" <laughs> to, to, to Jeff Zucker because this, yeah. this is all it's all about part, a piece. Well, it's part of Jeff Zucker's thing that like these are all characters in a drama, right? And the whole <laughs> thing is a dramatic storyline. Cable news, which you could see that in action over the weekend or Thursday and Friday night, right? Like now, it it, it was just it was bizarre to watch. But the I mean, this has been going on for a long time. This did not start with you know Brian and Fareed uh, shouting these quotes out like. Cable. Why does cable news love war so much? What is it? What is it about the medium? Why do Why do they always seem comfortable with military action? They're compelling images. I, I, I think that the boosterism and patriotism of being in favor of the troops who are launching these attacks is sort of an easy position for them to take. Right. And and they look they look back at Iraq and they see all the people that cheerleaded us wrongly into the Iraq War. And there's absolutely no cost for those people. Most of them were promoted. They're still on TV. They're still writing for their various publications. So like. 
what's the downside? I, I do think there's a very real downside in terms of policymaking insofar as we never discuss the difficult questions of what happens the next day. There's a political situation in Syria that is just irreparably damaged and an unbelievable disaster. And there's no conversation about what are we doing to manage that? Where's the diplomatic strategy? What's next? I, and I just want to say, too, this is this is a problem. And it's not just a problem with cable news. It is a problem with the Washington establishment. And this goes far beyond Trump and, and, and precedes Trump in a lot of different ways. Right. And this is a problem of both parties' establishments in Washington, that there is a bias towards military action. We always had a problem. We always said this in the White House. Ben Rhodes talked about the blob, (laughs) right, in Washington. Like, this is, it's a real thing, right? There, this, this consensus towards force, towards do something, even when you're, even when you don't know why you're doing it, and we do not know why. I do not believe Donald Trump could tell you with any, with any great clarity, why he decided to do this uh, military action. And there's a whole apparatus of think tanks and experts and bipartisan, <laughs> bipartisan panels that'll come together and get behind yet another military intervention. And I, and you know, I, I just, I don't understand. I understand why this comes from the right. I just don't understand how the the liberal side of this equation has been so co-opted because you look at what's happened, these military inventions that have gone poorly, it's when both sides have been conservative, when both sides have adopted a kind of conservative militaristic line. And I don't, I don't know how it changes. I mean, I think there's two factions in the, on, the, on the progressive side and the liberal side uh, that are dealing with this. One is, and you know, there was always sort of a uh, democratic centrist hawkish faction, right, that came up through the 90s, like Democrats have to look tough on terror, look tough, you know, after 9-11 especially, Democrats have to look tough on terror, tough on national security, and so they're more hawkish. And then there's a lot of uh, humanitarian interventionists, right, like people who see... Yeah genocide and and mass atrocities and say that it is the United States' obligation to go do something about that, right? And that's not quite the same as the Hawks, although there's overlap overlapping stuff there, too. I mean, look, I think it's a... It, the use of military force and deciding whether to use military force, it is a real debate. And, like, you don't want to be too cautious at times. Like, there are times the United States has to use force and use Absolutely. military. But I think that the bias towards it in Washington is, is severe. Yeah, I mean, I, I do Hawks, think this is... A, sorry, I do think it's just sort of, um, like... Donald Trump being president does expose the norms we've already broken. And a lot of those norms are about turning the president into this foreign policy dictator who could use Congress approval but doesn't need it, does need to wait for a NATO resolution or doesn't, does need a UN resolution or doesn't. There's, it's completely incoherent. And as a result, our debates about these matters become incoherent, too. Yeah. I mean, the hardest debate for in perpetuity will be what amount of war will prevent additional war. Um, yeah, that's exactly. always going to be hard. But when we when we cheerlead every one of these actions, when we refuse to discuss the hard questions of what comes next, I think we do a disservice to the people who are actually going to be on the front lines fighting these things and not, you know, sitting in Washington. And it's and it, it's like so hard to learn the lessons of even recent history. Right. Like we lost more than 4,500 U.S. troops in Iraq, cost us six trillion dollars, one million wounded between Iraq and Afghanistan. It's just like. We Not to mention the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, like like I said, who died. The, right? Like these are legitimate debates, and there's there's good arguments on both sides. But it's it's for some reason we don't talk enough about the costs of war. We talk so much more about like the need for action. Yeah, you know? I, I you know like there was a story there was a story this week about um, uh, kids being embarrassed in school for not having enough money to pay for lunch 
because the school doesn't provide free lunch, they have to bring the dollar forty or the dollar eighty or whatever it is for lunch. And I, I read that, and first of all, people were outraged, and it's like, well, guess what? This is how we've been treating for poor people for a very long time. We like to embarrass poor people to get their benefits. We've been doing that forever. But I just found myself thinking, like, how do we decide what's expensive? Because tomahawk missiles seem free in our debate about what we do. Military action is treated as if it's free. And <laughs> pipes in fucking Flint or school lunches for kids, those are too expensive. We can't seem to afford it. And I just... That has to change. Like we, we we have we treat military action like this like this inevitable sunk cost, and it's absurd. Oddly enough, that was um, was one of the messages that uh, Donald Trump ran for president with. Yeah, America <laughs> fucking first. Which is why a lot of um, <laughs> it's just why a lot of his base right now is pretty unhappy too. I mean, you see like lunatics like uh, you know Ann Coulter and uh, <laughs> yeah. and all those people are now are like really pissed at him. They're sort of he's 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 losing some of the base on this one, which is interesting. So let's talk about the, quickly before we get to our guest, let's talk about um, what I like to call a game of cucks, the, uh, <laughs> the ongoing infighting in the White House. Uh, we were so the, la- <laughs> we the latest on, we have, we have Bannon and Priebus versus Ivanka, Jared Kuckner, and, and, uh, and Globalist Gary is, 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 the, is the name for isn't him. Isn't it strange how these Bannonites refer to uh, Jewish White House staff, Gary Cohen and Jared Kushner, as the globalists? How odd. What a coincidence. Coincidence. I thought that the best, uh, I forget which piece it was, but the best little detail here was that uh, Bannon and the Breitbart crowd, when they text each other about Gary Cohn, they have two names for him, or they have two, <laughs> one is CTC for Carbon Tax Cohn, which I think is pretty lame, and the other, <laughs> and the other is just a uh, a globe emoji the earth emoji oh my god <laughs> so for, so that's first of all that's fantastic i'm actually a little bit impressed by their cleverness also i like how we're just like oh they're just violating the presidential Re- records act by the way like that's just yet another example that they're all talking using texting and other apps that they're not supposed to use because all these records are meant to be preserved terrific <laughs> i mean the, just the lack of discipline i mean the fact that it's not just every cut and thrust between jared and bannon that that leaks out it's like that the meeting where trump sits them all down to tell them to figure it out and shut up and stop acting like children that immediately leaks <laughs> nothing is sacred in this white house so they are funny. a bunch of children with very serious jobs and it's going to lead to a fucking disaster i know and also the, the politico story this morning where they talked about how to like rebrand the administration for the 100 days marker oh my god <laughs> and there's there's a communication meetle, meeting full of uh 30 people and six people le- like <laughs> literally one fifth of the meeting spoke you know, to politico <laughs> it's actually you know what it's a little bit hard it's i mean obviously everything is disheartening so but one thing that is heartening is that it is a little bit like there's a natural defense mechanism, which is when you assemble a White House filled with rejects, incompetent morons, goons, ideologues, people who have no business being in government. Uh, they're all so uh, unprepared and also scared and nervous and anxious that they're all leaking like crazy. And it's like when you assemble people that would work for Donald Trump, they're going to shiv each other because they're not the best. And it's sort of a nice <laughs> yeah. way. It's a nice little defense mechanism because they, they, I just don't understand. how it, It's not a leak. Like a leak implies that there was a wall to begin with or some kind of a, a barrier between this information. It's just a, fully fr- uh, f- uh, a free-flowing river of information. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they need to build a wall. <laughs> so my, I have one question 
question about this. So where it stands now is it looks like um, there's a detente between <laughs> Jared and Reince and um, and Bannon. Rapprochement, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> because Trump sat them all down and told them to be nice to each other. But we have um, McMaster has ousted KT McFarlane from the National Security Council. She's on her way to Singapore <laughs> to be ambassador. Did she which say is yes to it? Did she finally, sweet gig. She finally said yes to Singapore? I don't know if she did, but that, she's either there or nowhere. She's either there or Fox <laughs> News. I, either's fine with me. <laughs> um, you know, there were some rumors that maybe Sebastian Gorka is next because McMaster can't stand him either, probably because he... <laughs> He's a... I'm going to do... Shall I do the Gorka? Please, please. Oopsie doopsie, I've joined a Nazi group. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe yeah. maybe Gorka's next. But the overall question is, are, how much better off are we with some of these Bannonites nationalists out of the White House? Like, is it really going to improve the policy outcomes that much? That's That's what I want to know. Yeah, I just think that's the question, right? Like all the infighting, all I these machinations. No. Well, I'm answering my question. No, I don't think. We, look, I just, I, I don't know. I mean, first of all, we don't know how bad it. We, we don't know. I, I, I think we have to wait and see. I, I de- what I, what I definitely believe is true is Ivanka and Jared can do their best to spin their participation in this disaster, but until we see actual tangible policy changes on the issues they claim they care about, uh, it's all a bunch of bullshit, and they're just there to put lipstick on a pig. But like, you know, one, one thing that I will always, I will, to me, like, it, it's crazy, but like climate change, that Jared and Ivanka know better. And they sat back while the EPA was mined for parts by the fossil fuels industry. And if they want to claim that they're there to do good and they're there to help help their dad, then they need to talk about the environment. And that I'm, I will watch that one issue. And until that changes, and I don't believe it will change, to be honest, uh, it's all a bunch of bullshit. CTC's yeah, I'm got, with you guys. CTC's like, got I, your Trump's back, not going to change. Like I, I, I agree. Getting the white nationalist and his idiot crony friends out of the White House is absolutely a good thing. But Trump's not going to change, so the infighting's not going to change. So the fact that we have a, a person that is you know, totally incompetent and not up for the job leading the charge is not going to change, and we should all remain pretty freaked out. Yeah, and I'll just say, on domestic policy and relationships with Congress— Let's remember the reason that the healthcare bill was such a disaster, and we almost like people almost lost, you know, 24 million people almost lost their healthcare and gutted pre existing conditions is because of Paul Ryan. Yeah. And the House Freedom Caucus. Like, I, I do think that the dynamic between the Trump White House and the Republican caucus in the House is probably, the, in domestic policy, the more damaging dynamic than anyone who's in the White House. Right. And, that, and, and it would take a far better human being to change that dynamic and change the dynamic to the point where he could build a coalition in Congress with Democrats and Republicans to pass something that the three of us would actually think is okay. Right. I mean, it's just Donald Trump will continue to be Donald Trump. He is the, the fish rots from the head. He is the problem. And, you know, there'll be this constant apprentice like awful reality show for the next few years. But it doesn't matter who the players are. Donald Trump is going to be sitting at the head of the table. Okay. When we return, we will have the Washington Post, Ashley Parker. This is Pod Save America. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Hey, it's Lovett, and I'm on my way to your city. And by on my way, I mean I'm still in the shower, but still, about to head out. 
Love It or Leave It Live on Tour is heading all over the country. We'll be in Charlotte, Asheville, Boston, Madison, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. And if we're not coming to your city this time, I'm sorry, the country is too big. Take it up with the pioneers. To learn more and get tickets, head to crooked.com slash events. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at crooked.com slash friends. On the pod today, we have the White House reporter for The Washington Post, Ashley Parker. Ashley, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I know it's been a crazy, well, probably been a crazy, like literally every day since you've started on the White House beat officially, but it gets uh, escalated a bit when we start launching missiles. So how is Trump managing the situation in Syria? Is he getting briefed every day? Uh, Are they bringing you guys in for backgrounders or is it hands off now? Like what is, what is their approach to this? Um, I see, you know, according to his aides, he's getting briefed every day and getting updates. They're not bringing us in for a ton of backgrounders yet. Um, there was, you know, everyone is sort of, I was not there, but everyone is down in Palm Beach with the president. Um, and so they had a on-the-record briefing and a briefing that was going to be on camera with Spicer, and then at the last minute it was off-camera because they wanted the images, of course, of Trump to carry the day. Um, so I think it's an open question if and when we'll see start seeing them trying to shape this policy uh, behind the scenes with the reporters. And part of that may be because they don't quite know what, what the policy is beyond, you know, what they did with those airstrikes. So you wrote a piece about the uh, deliberations leading to the uh, strike on Syria. Uh, at one point you said that the president had been presented with three options, but discarded one. Do you have a sense of what the various military options that the president was presented with? Yes. I think the, the best sense we have of the three options were the, obviously the one that he did, a first option that was sort of basically nothing or, so, or something akin to nothing, like a, a strongly worded letter. Um, and then the third option was a much more aggressive option. And I don't actually know which one he discarded of those three. I don't know. I'm just wondering why he would. It seems like one of those options was a tweet. He does seem to like those. So maybe that was something <laughs> he kept in his back pocket. <laughs> So how much fun is Steve Bannon having in the White House right now? Do you have a what's the latest on your reporting uh, on the war between the Bannonites and the uh, and the globalist cucks? Well, if if you believe what, you know, Bannon has reportedly said that he loves a good gunfight, um, then he's having a ton of fun, right? Because everyone is out for him. Um, I will say I think reports of his demise are sort of overstated. You know, the, the president sort of told him and Jared to get their acts together and stop fighting. Ryan's over the weekend had a meeting with the two of them uh, that a lot about was reported on. A couple interesting questions. One will be sort of this, for Bannon, like this divide that people have been talking to me about uh, on sort of pure ideological purity um, or sort of a Reagan version of that, which is, you know, taking 80% of what you can get 
but also realizing that you have to govern. So, like, one early thing I'm going to be watching for is if Bannon, you know, is sort of one of these voices within the White House pushing behind the scenes to have the border wall funding in the CR. Mm. Um, that would sort of show, you know, a, a lack of flexibility on, on governing, um, you know, and, and more towards ideological purity, which I think would cause some problems for the president and right. <laughs> I, I love the idea of Reince Priebus, the most on the way out, calling a meeting between Steve Bannon, second most on the uh, on the way out, and Jared Jared Kushner, who's unfireable. Like, why are they listening to him? The, the, half the story is a bit about Bannon being on the way out, but the other half is about how Reince is going to have to leave politics. Right. Well, or Reince, who, you know, the big criticism of him, right, is that he can't manage anything. <laughs> so the idea that he's trying to manage this most tumultuous of, of relationships, but... But the White House yeah. is a good example of, like, the enemy of your enemy of the enemy is sort of your frenemy. I mean, I think you have kind of seen an alliance between Priebus and, and Bannon because they're just so opposed to some of the, you know, who they would call sort of like the Democrats or the globalists. The globalist cuts. Yeah. I mean, along those lines, actually, like th- these guys have lost three very senior officials in three months. They lost their deputy chief of staff, the national security advisor, the deputy national security advisor. Every day you read about Bannon being demoted, Reince being fired. Like they even authorized leaks about conversations to stop the leaks. I- is this place like is this how Trump wants it to be run or is it just as out of control as it sounds when you read the paper? I think it's a combo. I think Trump encourages kind of an atmosphere of of chaos and kind of survival of the fittest in, in Donald Trump's Hunger Games. I mean, that's that's something that has worked for him in business. It's worked for him uh, in the campaign in the sense that, that they won, right, which is what, what they measure everything by. Um, but no, I will say I don't think he's happy about all of these leaks in the press and the way, frankly, it's undercutting his agenda. So I think there does seem to be a real effort to regain some control, um, both of, of the actual operations of white of the White House, but also of the messaging um, and, and the narrative. And, you know, he's really eager for a bunch of successes. So to that point, sort of the outcome of all this infighting is supposed to be policymaking of some kind. Uh, and you have, you know, this dividing line, right? And you read these stories like, oh, the Jared Kushner Democrats wing is is triumphant with Gary Cohn and Dina Powell and Bannon's in retreat, what have you. But we haven't seen any sort of policy differences, right? Like what what does it look like for this infighting that we're that we're I'm, you know, personally admitting to enjoying immensely? Uh, like <laughs> what does it look like for it to manifest in actual changes in the way this White House proposes policy? That's a good question. When we were reporting on sort of like the latest round of infighting and the line out of the the Bannon camp was that, you know, all these Democrats don't understand why Trump got elected and they're not going to let him keep his promises to the base. When you went to sort of the the Jared camp and, and the other camp, their response, not incorrectly, was like, well, you know, what have we done that's been lefty or democratic or out of line with our promises to the base. And I think so far, other than maybe a few things in the margin, the answer has been nothing. Right. So I I just like we're left with this Sophie's choice of this horrible white nationalist being in charge or a 36 year old real estate (laughs) non mogul inheritance. Have her <laughs> right? Like, how is this the best we can do? I mean, does, does the White House never step back and think, you know, there's got to be someone else we could bring in? I mean, is, is there no like rumblings among Trump supporters on the outside that this doesn't have to be one of these guys? I mean, I, of course, there's rumblings on the outside, right? That's half of the leaks you're reading about is what his 
you know, on the campaign, the way donors always snipe and think they have better ideas. I'm sure you guys are familiar oh, yeah. with that. People, yeah. you know, people on the outside have a lot of better ideas uh, or think they have a lot of better ideas. I mean, two things I've heard. One is, which is a fair point, is that, like, no one actually wants the chief of staff job. It's <laughs> it's sort of, like, not an easy job to sell at this point. That is insane. Right. That is insane. <laughs> it is. It, it for, A year ago, it was one of the most coveted jobs in all of politics. It was, like, the, the sinecure of, it's, like, the craziest, coolest job somebody <laughs> could get. People have been, people gun for it for decades. We know them by name. We're not even going to say their names. <laughs> and now it's, like, these guys can't, they, they're posting jobs on Monster.com. And ZipRecruiter, our sponsor. Hey. Hey, Donald Trump sounds like love is looking. Love is in the market. <laughs> maybe Bill. Maybe Bill Daly will do it. <laughs> Ashley, we, we know that you're uh, you're going to be going to uh, Sean Spicer's briefing after this. Um, f- first of all, will you ask a few questions for us? <laughs> but yes. we'll get to those later. But second of all, how has your man confide? <laughs> now that you've been to a cu- now that you've been to a couple of these, how has your sort of strategy as a reporter evolved? Like, what do you hope to get out of these briefings, knowing that Sean is uh, somewhat reluctant to uh, to divulge a lot of information, to tell the truth? Uh, um, like my strategy for getting called on, or just my, my takeaway from the overall? Yeah, well, I guess strategy for getting called is like bright colors, sit up high <laughs> in your chair. I'm not sure. <laughs> Sky, bright colors, sort of like sit on top of Glenn Thrush. I right. mean, one time I found that I made eye contact with him and I got a question, so that can sometimes work. I mean, one, one thing that is not helpful out of the briefings is I found that, and I don't, this is the first White House, again, I've sort of covered in this capacity, so I don't know how it worked in other White Houses, but... If he says he'll get back to you on that, he he rarely gets back to you. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think the goal is to get as much as you can, right? Like in that moment, and this is not typical or unique just to this White House, but I find that some of the most revealing exchanges are when a topic is kind of drilled down upon and followed up on and circled back to again and again and again, whether it's the reporter who's asking the question asking a follow-up or another follow-up, and then if that answer is unsatisfactory or has raised new questions, other reporters in the room coming back to it. And to be clear, that's not like a mass strategy to, to game out Spicer, you know, from the press corps, but it's that, like, we all, oftentimes we all have the same question and, you know, we, we want an answer and we'll keep on returning to it. I'm actually interested in that because that's something that that I think a lot of people that aren't reporters have been kind of clamoring for. Like even a lot of people that have kind of worked in communications, even in the White House, have been talking about this, that we we wish that the White House press corps would be more of a team right now because there is so much stonewalling and kind of in, in an unusual way that we wish that you guys would, rather than thinking about your own questions, focus on kind of getting answers to what the reporter before you asked and what have you. And I just wonder what your reaction is to kind of that that critique. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question, and I think one that you've seen debated publicly, certainly and privately, right, especially if the president or someone won't call on someone from an outlet, right, or, or cut someone off because they don't like a question or something like that. What obligations do you have to go back to them? I will say I do think you are, especially on some of the key issues seen, these questions get asked, and even if it's maybe not quite as streamlined as you or someone on the outside would want to see, right, that, like, one reporter asks and the next reporter follows up and then the third reporter follows up, I often find that you do kind of get those follow-up questions, if maybe not in a quite so neat linear order. Um, two other things I think are, you know, sort of asking the three-part questions on three different topics is, I don't think that was ever helpful. I think it's particularly unhelpful with this White House. Um And I think you're seeing reporters come more, this is the only White House I've seen, um, especially the president, 
where you can ask a question with a fact embedded in it, and the president will just say, like, you know, that's not true. I never said that. That didn't happen. Um, so you do see reporters coming to the briefing a bit more armed like lawyers, right? If you're going to say to the president or even Trump's vice or this happened or, you know, Donald Trump said this, you need to know what he said on what day to who and have the quote in front of you. And I don't think that's a bad thing for any administration, recovery of any administration. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and, and to that point, actually, I mean, like the White House briefing is in many ways an institution that's built on trust. Um, you have to have a sense that the 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 press secretary is going to give you an honest answer, no matter how difficult the question is. And a lot of press secretaries have broken that trust and they quickly fall out of favor and usually get fired. Spicer opened his tenure with you guys by screaming at you about crowd numbers that were a blatant lie. I'm just wondering, how did you guys recover and push forward when the very first moment of that relationship was so broken and false? (laughs) I mean, I think I think a couple things. I think Spicer came into that job, uh, to be honest, with a lot of goodwill. A lot of people knew him sort of from around D.C. and having worked with him um, for a long time. So I don't think it was necessarily quite as damaging had it been a purely new presence. But, yeah, I think, I mean, I think there was always a healthy skepticism covering any White House. And I, I guess I would say it's even healthier and more robust. <laughs> With, with this White House. Very <laughs> diplomatic answer. I'm impressed. Well, uh, <laughs> one last question. I noticed in your um, in the story you wrote about Bannon last week, uh, it said, you know, this is based on an account with, you know, 20 White House officials or <laughs> other officials. And that seems to be a pattern in a lot of these stories. Like, do these people just, do you get the sense that these people just hate each other that work in the White House right now, that there's like more backbiting and infighting than there usually is in an administration? It's just, I mean, we've had leaking in our White House, right? Like it happens all the time in Washington. It just seems like an extraordinary amount coming from the Trump White House. <laughs> um, I, I will say two things on that. I mean, I think it's, from a reporter's point of view, I think it's nice to have so many entry points. <laughs> <laughs> do you, is, it, is it a problem that like you're missing calls from one leaker while you're on the phone like you have to constantly go back to your voicemail <laughs> I, I mean i think we as reporters appreciate that dynamic um, not necessarily you know the pure leaking but just you know the ability to get as many viewpoints and perspectives and people to talk to us as possible right like i think you want that in any white house not just the trump white house um right. and one reason why i think we cite those numbers in our stories is because um you know among other things i feel like sort of in a objective version of truth has been lost um, in this campaign cycle, in this White House, in this media. And so if, I think it's really dangerous for everyone, right? Because if in the Obama White House, you know, I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you guys very rarely repeatedly said about stories in the Post or the Times or the Journal or wherever, you know, this story is false, this story is bullshit, this story, you know, is is not at all true. and, yeah. and if you did, it, it kind of meant something, right? Like if Josh Ernst or, or whoever it was, Axelrod or Gibbs, like went to the podium and said that, people kind of thought like, oh, maybe this publication really did get it wrong. Yeah, like we would say stories were unfair a lot, but we wouldn't say false unless they were false. I mean, they, <laughs> I mean, they said stories were unfair all the time. <laughs> Lovett thought it was great. Yeah, no, Lovett never complained. Uh, <laughs> being so unfair to us. But, but when you have a White House that frequently denounces stories they don't like as false, 
you know, it, it's sort of like, it, it creates like a boy who cries wolf thing, which right. is bad for them, because I'm sure there are a number of false stories they get, right? But their credibility is a bit diminished. So when they're calling an actually false story false, it means a bit less coming from them. Um, but by the same token, if they're calling a real story false, we just want to make clear, you know, this wasn't one disgruntled leaker, right? These were like 22 people who hopped on the phone with us <laughs> in the past <laughs> 17 hours. <laughs> That's, uh, it yeah. seems like it's almost become like a little bit of a pissing contest. Like it started with like eight intelligence officials uh, verified this. We have 14 <laughs> sources, 6,000 people. Literally everyone but five people in yeah. the White House responded the to the story. The only person who won't say that Priebus is being fired is Priebus. <laughs> yeah, but Ashley had four people named Trump on the record in this story. <laughs> Uh, Ashley, uh, thank you for stopping by. And when you get to the briefing, if you get called on, just ask Sean when he's coming on Pod Save America. <laughs> All right, will do. All right, thank, <laughs> thank you, Ashley. Ashley. Thanks. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Don't go anywhere. This is Pod Save America, and there's more on the way. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, You'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else Tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com store to shop. Hey, it's Lovett, and I'm on my way to your city. And by on my way, I mean I'm still in the shower, but still, about to head out. Love It or Leave It Live on Tour is heading all over the country. We'll be in Charlotte, Asheville, Boston, Madison, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. And if we're not coming to your city this time, I'm sorry, the country is too big. Take it up with the pioneers. To learn more and get tickets, head to crooked.com slash events. Okay, today we also have a special segment presented by our friends at Veep, HBO's Veep. And with us today, we have the executive producer of Veep, Dave Mandel. Hi. Thanks for coming by. That sounds like we've paid you to have me on. In fact, you have. Well, that's just embarrassing. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. So now, listen. What a horrific start to this. <laughs> now, 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 we were going to be a little bit more um, subtle about it and record before the interview that we are being paid, but we would have done it anyway, so the joke's on HBO. It really is. As long as the check clears. <laughs> we had said since <laughs> the beginning of this podcast, we need to get V people on the podcast, and then suddenly HBO reached out and we said, sure. Yeah. We were excited okay. about it. Yeah. All right, fine. Kevin Spacey's coming in next for. Uh, how much did he pay? <laughs> how much did they give you? <laughs> we'll let you know how long his segment is. Um, well, first of all, I'd like to hear a little bit about this season. Could you, how much can you tell us about what's going on? You know, it's one of these funny things where I'm desperately trying not to say anything about anything, and I know. people just want everything spoiled and ruined. Um, 
we pick up a year after the end of season five, which if you haven't watched that, well, then this will be also a spoiler, which is at the end of season five, Selena lost the presidency. Right. And we pick up basically a year later and we kind of start to fill in the gaps of that year and sort of see where the the sort of the team has gone and how, where they've split up and how she is dealing with sort of losing power. And here's a hint, not well. <laughs> it's so funny that you guys wrote that she lost this thing and then... I know, but it has, I swear to you, it has nothing you to do... You no with, idea. No, no, I mean, I am personally separate from Veep. I was a, an active right. Hillary giver. Uh, I have a lovely picture here in Los Angeles over at the Henson Studios of my children with uh, with Hillary Clinton that I took, you know, that we got so that <sighs> I could save my daughter, the first female president of the United States. That's uh, now, think about how much yeah. better that picture would have been. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> now my children just look at me and go, when are we moving? But uh, um, no, uh, honestly, this goes way back to when the show was created by Armando Iannucci. Right. Um, and he ran the show for the first four years. I took over after him for year five, which was the resolving of the tie. That was what he had created, the uh, Electoral College tie. Right, right. And when I sort of sat down to start talking with Julie about taking over the show, my big sort of pitch was eventually we will solve this election and Selena needs to lose. That, that That's what she wants most on Earth, which, by the way, is probably similar to Hillary Clinton. Right. <laughs> what she most wants on Earth is to be elected president of the United States. And if we give it to her, in my mind, the show is over. There's no point in letting her win. So that was sort of my so sort of funny. whatever. And then obviously it turned out we were predicting the future. I remember yeah. thinking the same thing. I was like, if she wins and is president, like what happens? Is that like the end Ni- of the show? It's like when Niles what? got with Daphne, and you're like, what are we even doing here? There right. you That's go. That's a Frasier reference. There's your Frasier reference. You're with me on that. <laughs> what? What? Not you don't the, like being not, compared to Frasier? Not the biggest fan of that show. I know. I know. Comedy snob. Look at you, you. you could yeah. only see Lovett's face right now. <laughs> Um, I know what it looks like. So the <laughs> funny thing about Veep is like we, we as people who worked in the White House always get asked, okay, what's the most real? Is it House of Cards? Is it West Wing? And the answer is it's Veep because you guys nail the fragility of the egos in the like day-to-day idiocy of the decision making. Is that great writing, great actors, consultants? Like how did you guys figure out? It's a, that I mean, sounds so well. It sounds so silly. It is a magical combo. And I certainly don't want to take credit. Again, I do want to credit Armando as the show's creator. This thing existed. I was a fan of the show before I ever worked there, so that's mm-hmm. always a nice thing. But we try really hard. We have consultants from, you know, both sides of the aisle, as they say. You know, when we get into these issues like, you know, with this year in talking about Selena and the loss and what happens to the people, you know, we had wonderful conversations with people that worked in different White Houses. Some of the best conversations we had were people who worked under uh, Bush, the first Bush, Mm -hmm. because they didn't think they were going to lose. So it was sort of, in some ways, the closest thing we could get to. Obviously, Selena only served the one year as a vice president that was elevated. But in terms of getting caught off guard, in terms of not having preparations for a post-presidency, not having library plans, all of those things. So, again, all these pieces of things. We sat down. uh, Mitt Romney was gracious enough to come to our offices and sit down with us. And He's will, got nothing better to do. No, that's true. Well, apparently the Senate now. But, uh, um, but you know, willing to talk about what it's like to lose. And, you know, that, that kind of firsthand sort of knowledge of dealing with the loss and what he's saying about the loss and then how you kind of take that and go, what can we do with Selena? Because, you know, he's... 
Well, he, you know, he's not shy about saying he's got this amazing family and he's got some money and all of those wonderful yeah, things. But, yeah, but, but no. he still gripped the railing of that no, veranda he, pretty hard for like a year and a half. No, exactly. <laughs> and by the way, if you think he's gripping hard, wait till you see Julia gripping. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. I mean, we're talking talons, you know, like 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 the, the metal bar just like cracking. Yeah. So, again, you sort of take all of this in and try and process it. And look, uh, I don't know, you know, it's, it's also just sort of uh, knowing people. People, talking to people, but also a certain uh, lack of sort of willing to put everyone on a pedestal, which I think is sort of a natural ability to kind of go, oh, if someone's in Washington, they must be up on a pedestal, yeah. as opposed to, well, wait a second, I went to school with a lot of those guys. They're a-holes. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> can, I say, yeah. can I say that? Did I say that all right? You, or, you can say whatever you want. We got to be right next to that, okay. that title, so okay, you're fine. <laughs> um, so the big question that sort of hangs over season six is, you know, what do you do with the show about the absurdities of Washington? when Trump is president, right? And the Trump White House is sort of out-veeped veep, right? Absolutely, in a lot of ways. And I'll give you a perfect example, which is, and it sounds silly, I can't even imagine you're talking about something real. But at some point in the season, I had to turn to our writers and go, we have to take the golden showers joke out because <laughs> of what's going on in the news today. So we hadn't shot it yet, but it was there was a joke in the script. I think it was Jonah that we were making fun of because eventually, you know, in the quest to embarrass Jonah, you will get to a golden showers of course, joke. Yeah. And it had to come out because if we'd done it, it's first of all, it's eight months later by the time we, it airs, and it starts to seem like a stale, old, hacky reference. But also, it doesn't exist anymore. Golden sh- the, the purity of golden showers has been lost. Never again can you think of just an honest, good old-fashioned golden shower without thinking of Trump. It's been he's ruined it. It's he's been ruined. He's ruined the golden shower. Exactly. But you understand what I'm saying in yeah. terms of, and obviously again the the absurdity, but also who knew. So in a weird way, and this is how I've thought about it, the decision to have her lose the election, which again had nothing to do with Hillary and nothing to do with Trump, turned out to be our best friend in the world. Because we're still about politics, but the visuals are now different because we're not, she's not at the desk. She's right. not at the podium. Mike McClintock isn't doing press briefings where you could side by side them with Spicer right. and go, wow, Spicer is dumber and funnier than McClintock. You know what I mean? Yeah. We're, we're By taking this weird sort of sideways step into Lostville, I think we've actually given ourselves sort of perspective and a lens a little bit that differentiates it. Because I do think we'd be in real trouble had she won and still being in the White House because most of our White House stories on a given you know week episode, we're sitting there going, what's the stupidest thing we could have the President of the United States do or her staff do? And this stuff is happening on an hourly basis right now. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's the, the, we are at the end of parody with what's happening at the White House. So it's like, the, you know, how do you heighten it? How do you no, make it stupider? Have yeah. you noticed yourselves pushing the envelope even further because of what's happened in this season? No, not so much. Because like I said, it does get harder to sort of... Uh, you know, once golden showers are on the table, sort of, I think that's another thing, along with the lack of consequences, the level of discourse, you know, when you start having, what, what's the word, Republican debates where people are talking about penis size and hand size, Yeah. you know, yeah, we can add the word fuck to a scene and it's funny, but it, it, it starts to, yeah. it's almost like you have to go more creative. The envelope has to turn into something else a little bit. Well, we are very excited for this next season. I can't wait. I think right. you're going to like it. I'm going to get you <laughs> copies of it, the yes. next bunch of copies yes. of it. And then if you ever want to talk again, 
again, I'm sure we'll buy our way back on. <laughs> we would love that. Now you know our secret. Yeah. You come back anytime. Can I like pay for an extra two minutes right now and just kind of? We're, we're, yeah. we're cutting this down to the five you're allowed. Oh, damn it, <laughs> Dave. There's a coin slot in your microphone. <laughs> oh, there you go. Does this thing take Apple Pay? Can I just? Uh... <laughs> Dave Mendel, thank you for stopping by. This Sunday night, guys, the sixth season of Veep on HBO. Thanks again to Ashley Parker and Dave Mandel for joining us today, and uh, we will see you uh, a couple days. Bye, guys. Later. We lost Tommy. We should just mention that Tommy dropped off to do a Pod Save the World interview. I like when we do 10 seconds of odd closing, because these are the people that stuck it out, you know? (laughs) And now the music's starting. John, how are you doing? I'm great. I'm ready to record some ads. Bill's in the booth. He's having a great time. <laughs> I just don't want it to end. I had a great time today. Well, we have ads to do. Let's do, Let's do, do some, some ads. ads. <laughs> Let's do some ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something you need to get off your chest? What is your outlet for working through the things that stress you out? Uh, you know, I, I do the crossword. That helps. I'm also, I also go to therapy, you know, and I say, uh, this week, I don't want to make any progress. She's like, ugh, that's what she said last week. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot PSA.